So I'm going to read from Psalm 57. And the Bible says, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. And my soul is among lions, and I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth and spears are and whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps, and my soul is bowed down, and they dug a pit before me, and they themselves have fallen into the midst of it. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast, and I will sing yes. I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens, and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. Will you bow your heads and pray with me as we begin this service? Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as believers, to lift up the name of Christ, to worship together. Father, we ask that your spirit would bless this time. Lord, that you would uh, illuminate the scriptures. And as we take communion together today, Lord, I pray that the time here at the altar would be precious. And Lord, as we spend that time just in reflection of what it is you've done for us, and as we spend that time just in processing in our own spirit the things that you are wanting to do, I pray that that would be a time... Father, that your spirit would bless. And we thank you for every aspect of what you're going to do today. And we thank you for the fellowship of these saints. And we just pray for your blessing over this time. We pray for LifeGate as they're wrapping things up. And for Pastor Niles as they make their way over here in the traveling mercies there, we ask for that, Lord. We thank you now and we want to lift up the name of Christ and worship him today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. These are letters of what I've called, if I was going to rebadge this message today, I would call it this, letters of shame. These are two letters of shame right here to the church of Sardis and the church of Laodicea. If I was the pastor of these churches, I would head my, hang my head in shame to get a letter like these from the Lord of the church. Listen as I read beginning in chapter 3 and verse 1. I'm only going to read one verse at this point and I'll walk through other things. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. These words represent, in my mind, the ultimate shame to have the Lord himself send a letter by messenger to arrive at the church, addressed to the pastor, to the leadership, to be read to the church. 
and to hear those words, you are dead. Church had a reputation, that's for sure. Sardis from a distance looked like it was alive, but understand this, the Christ of the candlesticks does not judge our church from the road. He does not look at our church from, from a distance. He looks at it because he is in our church. He is with us here today. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what we are thinking. He knows exactly how we respond. He knows exactly the attitudes of every person in this room. And we need to understand this is because this is very important to us. The Christ of the candlesticks views us from the inside. The church of Sardis had a name, but it was not alive, it was dead. This is a common tragedy, my friends, of many churches today that still have some light from their past, but in reality now they, uh, that light is flickering, it is, it is waning, it is nearly out. It's a common tragedy. Verse 1 is a powerful description of the Holy Spirit, referred to as the, uh, as the seven spirits of God. Let me unfold this. It comes from Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. And we, have this, and we have the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, of knowledge, of fear, and the spirit of the Lord. I've always held that chapter 3 and verse 1 pertains particularly to the leadership of the church. And why is Jesus saying this? Why is he speaking in this way? A dead church would not have the benefit of the power of the Holy Spirit at all. There would be no power of the Spirit of the living God. It would not have godly leaders who would manifest that power of the Spirit. Jesus comes to the church as the one who gives life to the church. The work of the Spirit along with <coughs> godly leadership is a reminder of what this church did not have. So here's a church devoid of the spirit, void of spirit-filled leaders, and Jesus said, you are dead. Now I know this is not sounding like a real super uplifting message, but I'm telling you folks, this was a message written to the reality of churches of that day and of this day too. Don't tell me that there aren't dead churches and communities because we know there are. And it's very evident. It becomes very, very evident. This is a church dominated by the flesh, dominated by sin and dominated by unbelief. They simply did not have the life of God in them. Sardis, a rich but sinful city. It was also a place of paganism in various forms. It's interesting that Jesus picked this church out because doing a little bit of homework on the city itself, you find that this is a city that's set on somewhat of a rise in the ground, kind of a, not necessarily a hilltop or anything like that, but it had two large towers. And these towers were built for one thing only, so that somebody on the top of that tower could watch to make sure no enemy was trying to, to, uh, to come up and to try to conquer that particular city. On two occasions, this city was conquered 
And the reason they were conquered was because the guards went to sleep. And the enemy simply came in and overwhelmed the community because the guards were asleep. God has a small church that he planted there. It's interesting to me. Jesus knows everything about it, absolutely everything. But as a church that had become contaminated by the, uh, by the world, by characterized by inward moral decay and spiritual disintegration. Whenever you read in the Bible, whenever you read this in the Bible, <coughs> deadness in the spiritual dimension is always connected to one thing, and that is sin. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says it this way, dead in your trespass and sin. Deadness is a result of sin. Colossians 2.13 says it this way, when you were dead in your transgressions. Sin creates deadness in, our, in people's lives. We see that in the church. Deadness as a result of sin. Listen to me, saints. A church is in grave danger when there is widespread sin and when, that has not been repented. A church is in danger when it begins to worship its own past. A church is in grave danger when it is more concerned with forms and liturgies than in reaching people with the gospel. It is in serious condition and grave danger when the church system and the apparatus of the system becomes more important than the offer of salvation. We can easily be caught up in these things, very, very easily. It doesn't come banging on the door and crashing through the front. It comes subtly. So how do you turn around a dead church? Jesus gives us the answer here, actually in verse 2, beginning in verse 2. He says, first of all, he means wake up. You cannot be indifferent. The call to reversal of attitude, what is happening, determined to make a difference, wake up. Number two, strengthen the things that are remaining. Find out what's alive. And even if it's small, this is where the Bible gives us a huge help. And number three, receive. I, I'm sorry, remember what you received and what you have heard. You have to look back. That's because somewhere you took a wrong turn. Have you ever been on the interstate? and you took a wrong turn, what do you do? Well, you have to go back. And basically, you gotta figure out where you took the wrong turn and not make the wrong turn again. You may not make the right turn anyway, but at least you don't wanna make that wrong turn again. This has happened to me. It's happened to probably all of us. We made that wrong turn. We go back to where we made the turn and we start over. And then we keep it simple. Laodicea is a different kind of a church. Laodicea is marked out as what we call the lukewarm church. The Bible says it this way, uh, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, uh, write these things, says they, notice, the, notice the, uh, the titles of God here. The amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of God. God knows what's going on. 
Laodicea was an important trade city. It was a city of great levels of commerce. It was a banking center. It was the Federal Reserve of that day, if you will. It was known for its fine black wool garments that was especially soft. It was also known for its ability to treat eye problems. It was the wolf clinic of its day. And all of these things was a part of the Laodicean culture. And not only that, of course, then you had then all of the paganism. He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Deeds always reveal a people's true spiritual state. And this is backed up by Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 says, You will know them by their fruits. We are nowhere saved by grace, but the deeds of our lives, the deeds of our lives confirm or deny the real presence of God at work in our life. Jesus then goes on and says, he tells them, here beginning in, in verse 15, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. Hot. These are people who are spiritually alive and are living out a transformed life. Hot people are transformed people. Hot people are on the cutting edge. They are doing their faith. They're living it out. This is their life. Then he says there are also cold people. These are people that are unmoved by God. They have little or no spiritual response. They have little or no interest in Christ and his word or his church. And they don't care if you like it or not. But the worst is yet to come. He says, you're not hot and you're not cold. What you are is lukewarm. Lukewarm. They fit neither of these categories. They do not openly reject the gospel. They attend church a few times a year. I believe, and I believe Jesus describes these lukewarm people well in, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did not, listen to me, did not we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name, and I will declare I never knew you. Now, folks, if there's a verse in the Bible that should frighten you, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23 should. That is frightening. And Jesus goes on, he says, the reason for that is you didn't even walk in my will. Let me tell you something, folks. Someday we'll stand before God. I'll stand before God, too. I would rather have a thousand people walk up to me on that day and say, Pastor, we came to church because we wanted to be encouraged and strengthened and blessed and, and walk out happy and everything else. But there were times when you stepped on my toes. You were times when you, I think you must have been reading my mail. There were times when you said things that didn't, I just didn't really like. I'd rather hear that a thousand times than have one person walk up to me and said, Pastor, you did not tell me the truth. We don't play church here. Other people can, we're not. If you're looking for a church to play church, you really ought to find a different one because it's not going to work here. 
Remember, these letters were to churches. The letter to the Laodiceans mean the church was lukewarm, which means they had a form of righteousness, but they were being deceived. Jesus said, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I've called it hot tub religion. Hot tub. It's warm, it's bubbly. It makes you feel good. There is absolutely no effort that you must make. There is absolutely no commitment that needs to be offered. Nothing to get excited about. It's hot tub religion. Verse 17 says, For you say I am rich. And this is a powerful verse. You say I'm rich. I have become wealthy. I don't need anything. Think of this. This is a church that is... that Jesus is saying, you, this is what you have said to me. I am rich. I don't have need of anything. And in verse 18, Jesus said, you need everything. You absolutely need everything I can give you. And then he begins to say, I'm counseling you. I'm counseling you today. Buy from me gold that has been refined in the fire. Now, we're not talking about money that you stick in your pocket here. We're talking about the refinement that comes by knowing Christ and the, and the, uh, and the righteousness that Christ brings into our lives. That's what we're talking about here. He says, I'm not interested in that black wool that is fine, that is soft and wonderful. I'm interested that you buy that you, that you gain these white robes of righteousness. That's what you need. And he goes on and says, the eye salve at your wolf clinic here in Laodicea is a nice thing, but you need to have me touch your eyes so that you can see, the see with reality, the things that are important in your life. Guys in the back there, put up Salman's picture, would you please? And just leave it up. We've all seen this fairly famous painting by a a man named Salman. It's in verse 20, which says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I've used that on countless times to invite people to come and know Christ. But there's something else that's even more important. It would be the first. It would be the first read on this thing. Jesus has come to the door of our lives, of our church. He has taken the initiative. Listen to me. He took the initiative. He took the initiative. I came to your door, and I'm standing at your door, knocking on your door. And the reason you can respond is because the Holy Spirit calls for response. How does God knock on the door of your life? There's many ways. I believe God uses circumstances a lot of times. Sometimes we just don't listen to listen to truth. We don't find truth and so God begins to arrange circumstances in our lives that 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 shapes and that conditions our responses in many of these areas. God can use people. He may use somebody in the service. He may use this message to speak to you and call on you to respond. God uses his word. His word is sharp and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. 
It can cut right to the source. And God can speak through that word. One of the most dangerous things a person can do is to simply ignore God. And I believe people speaks to, I, I'm sorry, I believe God speaks to people in a service like this. And I believe there are simply two options. We respond to God or we ignore God. And when we ignore God, listen to me carefully, when we ignore God, it sets off something called the hardening of the heart. Our heart gets harder, little bit at a time, little bit at a time, little bit over here. But it becomes glazed over. Our heart becomes glazed over. And that's one of the most dangerous things we can do. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 8 says, Do not harden your heart. He, uh, Proverbs 28 verse 14 says, Whoever hardens his heart will fail. I illustrate this with Pharaoh. He heard the demand of Moses, who was speaking for God, and yet the Bible clearly says he hardened his heart. What did, how did that happen? Because he ignored what God was speaking. He ignored what Moses was saying. Moses was speaking on behalf of God. And he ignored it. You choose to ignore God with his desires for your life. You run this risk, a huge risk. Soon, a service like this won't even phase you. You can sit through it, shrug your shoulders, and walk out. Samson was moving in that direction, if you remember. Handsome guy, lovable guy, laying in the lap of Delilah. She conned him. Samson gave away the secret. It's his hair. But you know what? It wasn't his hair. It was his obedience to God. That's what it was. Cut the hair off. And then the Bible says this, and these are astounding words. Samson says, I'll just go out and shake myself like before. But he did not know. Listen, saints, he did not know that the Spirit had left him. Now that's an interpreter's paradise right there. He did not know. He did not. He did not know. Heart glazed over. Heart hardened over. Now the end of the story is important because it was only the penetrating lightning bolt power of the Holy Spirit that broke into old Samson one more time. Cost him his life. I stand at the door and knock. And if you'll hear my voice, we've covered a lot of this already. Listen, allow the message to saturate into your mind and spirit. Open the door. Notice something on Salman's painting there. If you'll notice it, and I think you've seen it, many of you have. There is no door latch on the side in which Jesus is knocking. The only door latch on this door is the one that is definitely unseen, and it's on the inside. It's certainly not on the outside. That is why you are the one asked to open the door. I have to ask God, 
to work in my life. It's something you do. You open the door. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. God is desiring deep relationship with his people, but that means you open the door. There are many today that are willing to say, very willing to say, I just want to go along with everything and get along. I just want to be happy. I, I just want to get along with people, even people who don't agree with me. I just want to be happy and get along with them. Folks, that is a sign of lukewarmness that is beginning to come. It's a sign you're losing ground with God. Let me read something before I close. Theologian D.A. Carson, a person that, that I have a deep respect for, he's still living today, he makes this important statement, and I've written on this before, but I bring it back to your attention. Listen carefully to these words. Apart from grace-driven grace effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness. They do not gravitate toward prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and we convince ourselves that we have been liberated. These are strong and they are necessary words for us today. Donnelly, are you playing the organ today? Would you come back? God wants to work directly in our lives, in our hearts. I want to be very blunt and very frank today. There are a lot of people that think there's a lot of ways you can get to heaven. Jesus said there's only one way. John chapter 14, verse 6 says, I am the way and the, the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You don't go to heaven because you went and joined the church. You won't even find that in the Bible. If somebody said you can join the church and make heaven, they have lied to you. They were not truthful. You can't make heaven because you took communion at this place up here today. This is a place of remembrance. It doesn't save you. A piece of bread and a little cup of juice will not save you. It's what the Christ on the cross did. That's what saves you. It's not about being a good person and saying, I believe the good things in my life are going to outweigh the bad, and therefore I get a break from God because I was better. Or I'm not going out here and saying, I'm better than Leland, therefore I get to go to heaven. That isn't how it works, folks. That will never work. That will never work. It is Christ in you, the very hope of glory. Christ in you. There are a lot of people today that know about Jesus. There are lots of people today that 
have facts about Jesus, maybe they even read part of the Bible, and yet they don't know Christ. He's not in them, because if he was in them, he would be governing their lives, but he does not govern their lives. Let me ask you this important question, critical question. What is it in your life, in your life today, that is standing in, your, in the way of you fully committing yourself to Jesus Christ. What is that one thing? Or two things or whatever. Well, fully committing yourself to Christ. Jesus wants a relationship. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and behold, all things will come new. The last thing I speak from Revelation chapter 3. He stands at the door and knocks. He invites you to let him come in. And he says this, I will come in. I will come in. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus promises many things. But the big ones are, he will forgive you and he will change you. I'm going to pray just about uh, in, in just a moment here. I'm going to pray, and during that prayer, in the middle of that prayer, I'm going to pray what some people might call the sinner's prayer. Call it what you want. But it's a prayer, prayer for people to pray along with me and to ask Christ truly to come into their life, truly come into your life and be the Lord of your life. This is a great day to do that. You'll never find a better day than right now to invite him to come in, to govern your life, to forgive your sins. Take up residence right here in your heart and your life. Allow him to be the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus. I thank you for this service today, the time of communion. Thank you for the baptismal service with Emmeline. Thank you, Father, for all so many good things, and thank you for your word. This is a word that was hard. This is a word that was difficult. This is a word that sometimes I guess we don't even, that we don't necessarily want to shout about, but it's a word that is necessary. We preach the whole counsel of God. And so, Father, today, may they, you take this word. I pray that it has penetrated into the deepest part of people's lives. Father, I pray for people right now that need Jesus, that really need to ask God to forgive them and to come into their life and to make being a Christian a genuine reality that Christ is in me, truly in me. I'm asking you to help them to pray along with me this morning. Pray like this. Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I, for years and years, I thought this will save me. This will make me have favor with God and all kinds of things. This morning, I realize it's just Jesus. It's Jesus and him alone. Nothing else. Just Jesus. 
This morning I open my heart and my life and I ask, Jesus, come into my life. Live in my heart. I want to be saved. Saved from my sin. I want to have you govern my life. I want a new life. Father, I believe that Jesus died for me and I believe he rose from the dead. And today I ask him to be the Savior and the Lord of my life. I open my heart into my heart. Come in and be the Lord of my life. I'm praying this earnestly and honestly. In Jesus' name, amen.